These are the target files. Discussing the novelizations and audiobooks of classic and now also new series Doctor Who stories. Looking through the eyes of adulthood at our childhood memories. After all, a great Time Lord once said, there's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish some of the time. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who Target Files. I think we're up to episode 96 now. And this time we have a very special guest from the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast in the States, Mr. Tony Witt. Tony, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you, Mike? Very good. Uh, very nice summer day here over in Wales today. How's the weather stateside? It's ridiculously hot and muggy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm kind of a little bit probably closer to the coast than you are and uh you know we have a a good bit of breeze here today which is nice but it is pretty hot at least we don't have the same weather as they're having in new orleans we're not being besieged by a hurricane anytime soon oh goodness no no that would be uh that would be awful wouldn't it, it must be awful for them at the moment so tony um would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast if if they're unaware of it it's certainly one i recommend i recently listened to your most recent episode discussing the pertwee story the mind of evil Thank you very much. We're the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Um, you can find us on Facebook at that name, all one word with no spaces, like a crazy person. Uh, what we do is we have taken on the task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. And we are currently, as you said, in the Pertwee era. We're about a third of the way through. We just recorded Claws of Access, and that'll be going out, uh, let's see... This is being recorded on July 13th, so it'll be going out tomorrow, so probably our episode may be going out for this one. Yes, and I did a little bit of uh, research on your sort of Doctor Who background uh, that I could find online, if you don't mind, Tony. Um, there was an interview with you at, was it Chicago TARDIS last autumn? Yes, yes, definitely. That would have been with the, um, oh God, who was that? That was... Um... <laughs> I'm trying to remember who did it, which podcast it was, because there have been so many. Going back a long way, isn't it? About six, eight months, so. But yes, it really has been. It's uh, too much scrolling, that's it. No, and what interested me was um, how you first got into Doctor Who, you know, sort of being, I suppose, part of the psych of British children. Well, certainly myself, I grew up, I was born in 1977, and uh, my very first memory of the show is... Um, the Regenerations were always a big television event in this country, and the uh, Watcher appearing to complete the transformation from Tom to Peter is my first memory as a four-year-old. Um, what is your memory, uh, your first memory of Doctor Who from that side of the pond? 
Oh, let's see. First memory would have been about 79, because I keep saying I've been a fan since 79, though I may be wrong about the date. But I came home on a Sunday from, I believe it was church, but that shows how long ago this was. And nine years old, looking for something to watch on television, had the uh, house all to myself, so I turned on PBS. And there was the last 25 minutes of what I would later find out was Terror of the Zygons. Yes, but it caused me to be really confused, because as you remember, Harry Sullivan kind of ends up a bit doctorish there for a little while, and he was the first male lead I saw in that episode, so for a few minutes at least, I thought he was the doctor until we had the scene with Tom Baker in the uh, Zygon spaceship. Ah, yeah, yeah, when you, uh, I just remember it being magical, my first memory, seeing the Watcher, and then, um, Mm -hmm. kind of got on into the show, uh, over the next few years, I never really embraced fandom until the show came back in 2005, though. Um, my father here in Swansea, um, he actually worked in the same education sector as Russell T. Davis's father. Oh, really? So um, they, they kind of knew each other, and he sort of said to me, you know, uh, you know, I was in my late 20s by this time, and I had kind of lulled with some of my fandom. And uh, he said to me, oh, my uh, my cousin, my uh, colleague Viv, his son Russell, uh, the writer, he's bringing your show back, you know, and I was a little, I was a little bit sceptical as uh, a lot of, I think a lot of fans were, weren't we? But then uh, I was quickly blown away by Rose and everything when it was broadcast. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, it took some getting used to, I will admit, because in many ways it's not traditional Doctor Who at all, but in other ways it's very much the same show. Absolutely, you know, it did need to uh, regenerate, shall we use the phrase, uh, for the 21st century. Yes. But um, I think I probably was a little more involved with the fandom in uh, the 90s because I had a uh, Yahoo discussion group, that's how far that goes back, when the uh, Big Finish audios started. So we we were discussing the Doctor Who audios, but I abandoned that after a few years and then lost interest after the TV movie failed to bring anything in. And it was only the the new series that really brought me back. TV movie's an interesting one, you know. We all know the production was sort of... From the -the behind-the-scenes documentaries and the various books written about it, it was... uh, Because it was a co-production, it was pulled in so many different ways, wasn't it? Yeah, it definitely was, though... Um, Russell T. Davis has said that there are many things in that movie that he loves and that he tried to reproduce in his series, and you can really see it. Its fingerprints are all over the new series. I think so. I I certainly think so. And um, discussing the uh, target range, on the interview from Chicago TARDIS, I believe you referred to your very first uh, novelization that you found, and it was quite an interesting one. (laughs) Yes. Uh, the, The way I got my first Doctor Who novelization ever was winning a contest. Well, no, 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 that's later. That's for the five doctors. I forgot all about that now. Um, was in in America for public broadcasting system, you were able to pledge money to it. They, they're supported by viewer dollars and by government funding. As a viewer, I had the option of paying $5 a month, which I think was my whole, my whole um, what am I looking for? Not inheritance, um, allowance <laughs> per week. And for that amount, you got two Doctor Who books. One was a Target book, and the other one was one a specialty book, they called it. 
And the Doctor Who novelization that they sent me, the very first one I got, was The Horns of Nymon by Terrence Dix. So that should have put me off Target novelizations for good, but it didn't. At the age of nine, I was just, well, that would have been the age of ten, I think. I was just so happy to be reading a Doctor Who book, and it was one of an episode that I had just recently seen, and comparing the differences, and it was really all that exciting. Whereas the only thing that interested the other kids on my school bus was the fact that the writer's last name was Dix. Ah, very much so, yeah. I can I can understand that sort of uh, attitude. <laughs> yes. Well, we've got much the same attitude towards it on our podcast. We uh, tend to go for the middle school, school humor every once in a while. Ah, oh, don't worry. We all do. I think all fans do of uh, all ages. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The other book was uh, Canine and Other Mechanical Creatures. Okay. Who is that? Terrence Dix as well? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I, I would go and look, except... That book started falling apart within a couple of years. The binding on those books are just terrible, and I've never bothered to replace it because it's probably broken in the replacement copy, too. So I just try not to touch it as much as possible. Speaking of which, on this episode, um, we're looking at a novelization, one of only two, I think he did, by ex-producer Philip Hinchcliffe. Indeed. And The Mask of Mandragora. Now, I was intrigued to contact you because I picked this up secondhand a few years ago in an excellent bookshop uh, in Cardiff, 40 miles down the road, the home of the new series, of course, called Trokemark Books, and they usually have quite a uh, collection of... a good collection of secondhand uh, Doctor Who books, and uh, I noticed it was published by Pinnacle Publishing, and uh, uh-huh. those are the ones in the States. Could you give me a little bit of background, maybe, about that uh, about that group? I am so glad that I looked this up yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. I just—I—I I guess I sort of assumed because you're in the states, you'd know. But I'm sorry, that was me being a uh, no, too presumptive. Yeah. Well, no, I—I knew—I know about the Pinnacle books, of course. I—I I have copies of all of them, including the uh, odd variant editions. But I did not know until yesterday what their publication history was. I still don't know why it was they decided to pick up the Doctor Who books, except that. Lyle Stewart, the uh, distributor here in the States for the Target novelizations, hadn't yet gotten the uh, the go-ahead to do it, I guess. So they did a series of... It ended up being 12 novelizations. In fact, I'm looking at my copy of Masculine Dragora right now. And there are only two Pertwee novelizations and the rest are all Tom Baker, so that tells you something about the audience they were going for. They knew that people were watching uh, Doctor Who on, uh, in fact, ah, next podcast episode that we're doing is Doomsday Weapon, and that's one of the ones they did. Ah, that's interesting, because um, on the same day I picked this up from the bookshop in Cardiff, I also picked up the Doomsday Weapon, the pinnacle copy, so I'm not sure if it was an expat who lived over here, maybe, who uh, donated them to the store. I'm not sure. That would be interesting to find out. Probably so, but if you notice on the back cover, it gives you an explanation of who the Doctor is, and it tells you where you can see it, and it says, now this incredible space fantasy can be seen on television in major cities throughout the United States via Time Life Television. And they were the first distributor of uh, Doctor Who here in the States, so this would have been 79? Yeah, yeah. And the craziest thing about these... The craziest thing about these is that they have an introduction by Harlan Ellison. Yeah, 
I'm I'm intending to read that aloud to my panelists next time we have a podcast because it is absolutely fascinating because it's really about the only time he ever mentions Doctor Who ever. Yeah, and he's quite in-depth, you know. I'm sort of skimming through here and he mentions, you know, Davros and Khalid scientists and uh, some sort of quite intricate details, really. Yeah, it's obvious that he's been watching it and that he knows his stuff and it is a very good introduction to american uh viewers and readers but the strangest thing is that of all the perjury novelizations they could have chosen their first one was day of the daleks and then the other one was of course doomsday weapon and then they're just kind of all over the place in uh baker's first two seasons yeah and doomsday weapon is that mark hulk yes yes one of the best books ever written Absolutely, yeah. Look, we haven't done that one yet, and we're looking forward to it in our in our little random generator. We'll do it at some point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he's amazing, absolutely amazing. Our panelists, well, I I say that they they didn't seem to like cave monsters as much as I did, but that's just you know. <laughs> I mean, we all get get so used to Terence Dix, and I think as you discussed on the most recent Mind of Evil podcast, um, there was various different periods of time wasn't it you know when the fact that these target novels didn't come out in chronological order some might have been better suited if they were written closer to the initial episode broadcast Uh, agreed that and it depends on when they're written how interested dix is in doing the best job possible we uh uh, in fact, on our podcast, we tend to break him up into early dicks, middle dicks, and late dicks. And whenever we get a late dicks book, we're just like, oh, God. <laughs> we have to brace ourselves because it's simply script page, whereas early dicks uh, is phenomenal. I mean, um, Auton Invasion is one of the best books within the range. Yes, you know, uh, it, that's seen as well. Not that one in particular, but the later ones you speak of, they are seen as being Terence writing A to B, aren't they? You know, he follows a very straight path. Yeah, and unfortunately, and I hate to, you know, prejudge the book we're going to be talking about today, but I find Hinchcliffe does that a bit too. I think so, I would agree with that. And thinking of Terence, I did hear him speak in a very small Welsh town a few years back, interviewed by um, Ed Russell, the old brand manager of Doctor Who. And he... He pretty much admitted, I recorded the panel, but, you know, for legal reasons, I haven't uploaded it at all yet. But um, at the time, you know, Terence freely admitted, yes, there was a period I was doing them for money. So mm-hmm. that was yeah. straight from the man's I mouth mean, himself. Yeah, I understand that totally. I, and in fact, we can't really, we can't really, uh, what's what I'm looking for? You, I'm sorry about these bouts of aphasia. They usually do hit me when I'm trying to say something important. No, I'm exactly the uh, same with recording. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, it, it's it's a good thing he did it anyway because some of the books that he novelized we still don't have the original stories, so there's that. The only problem is because of his lack of interest in those, we <laughs> we have a late Dix novelization of the Space Pirates, which I think our panel thought was the worst book they'd read ever. Yeah, not got a good reputation as in well the episodes that survive either, has it? No, no, not at all. Long and boring and not quite even a Troughton story. Sorry, interesting to see how something like The Enemy of the World has changed since they found it. Yes, 
And, yeah, because you're right, its reputation has been completely uh, renovated by being able to see everything. And now we realize that that existing episode that we had was actually the worst of the whole set. Even Barry Letts thought so, and he directed the thing. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And hopefully we'll get some more one day, but who knows? Oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Overall, could you give us some teaser thoughts you already have, I suppose, on the Mask of Man- Mandragora? I noticed that Hinchcliffe does what any good novelist does. He reorders events a little bit, but not too badly. Um, we're still starting in the TARDIS, obviously, but... Um, in fact, why did I make that note? There's some difference at the very beginning. That's it. We start in Italy. I mean, looking at sort of certain criticisms of this book online, um, there's a tendency to end a lot of the sentences with exclamation marks. I listened to the audiobook by your suggestion, and so I didn't see all the exclamation marks, and I'm wondering if they're in this version. Uh, were they in the uh, Pinnacle version? In the Pinnacle version, um... They have uh, extracted most of them, I think. Okay, that's that's it then. I believe that's it. But I do, yeah, I did have a sort of trace memory of, of having the target vision at some point, so... He definitely does that in Keys of Marinus. Yeah, that's the other one that uh, Phil, Philip Hitchcliffe did, didn't he? Yeah, and I'm trying to remember why there's a story behind that. I think it's that Terrence Dix was busy with something else at the time... So the target editors approached Hinchcliffe, and Hinchcliffe had always wanted to write a book. So he said, yeah, sure, and asked which one they wanted him to do, and it happened to be that one for some reason. And that's why you get the job that you've got on it, because it's really not him at his best. I think this book is probably him giving it another go, and since it's a story that he himself produced, there's a little more care taken with it. Yeah, seen as a golden era, really, fill it with Tom. Um, there are a couple of weird things in it, though. Hinchcliffe makes the Doctor sound a lot more snippy than he usually is. Even Piggott Smith's reading of the book does the same thing. Yeah, I mean, having seen a lot of Tim Piggott Smith, sadly, he passed away a few years ago. Um, in many TV shows, he's always had a very sort of authoritarian manner and voice, and I think, um... You know, that certainly, as you said, adds to the Doctor's snippiness within the audio version. Yeah, but then otherwise, he sounds a lot like a cross between William Hartnell and Trevor Martin. Because Trevor Martin, of course, played the Doctor in the mid-70s in the stage show, and then did audio dramas. He sounds exactly like him. Onto the sort of TV episodes as well, the sort of visuals, um, were you impressed by the look of the sort of Renaissance period? I, I did recently. Yeah, I did recently because I like to be able to compare the uh, book version to the televised version. And yeah, it actually, I mean, for something that's set-bound, which it is, it looks really impressive. And then all of those um, location shots that, I'm I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, it's Port, Port Myron, is that right? Port Myrian, okay, there we go, where the prisoner was shot. I noticed for the audio version, the FX are a lot louder than the narration at times. Yeah, the, the levels, yeah, they do. Tennessee to have that. I mean, I think I prefer a lot of the earlier audio versions because they have this uh, quite silly introductory music on the more recent ones. Do you uh, do you collect yes. those? Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, in fact, I, I'm much like you. I prefer the older ones, including uh, 
Probably my favorite Doctor Who audiobook is The Gunfighters because Shane Rimmer does such an amazing job with that. Yeah, I haven't got around to that one yet, actually, and uh, of course we lost Shane just a few months ago. Oh, that's right, we did. Gosh, I'm... Yeah, one of those people that always seemed to turn up at British conventions and I'd always think, oh, I'll get his autograph next time, but uh, I've left it too late now. Yeah, Katie is supposed to be coming to uh, Chicago TARDIS in November, and I'm like, stay in health, stay in health. <laughs> want desperately to meet her since we're doing her books right now. Yeah, a friend of mine ran a very uh, sort of successful but very small scale one here in Swansea in Wales, and Katie was quite a regular there, so she's oh, just nice. just a lovely person. Definitely, definitely. And um, I'm making my first trip to the States in 30 years next year. I've, I'm going to Gallifrey 1, so... Oh, that's right. You mentioned it in the uh, podcast, didn't you? Yeah, my parents took us to Florida to Disney when I was 13, and uh, I'll be 30 next year. Uh, sorry, I'll be 30. I'll be 43, 30 years on next year, so uh, it's about time for a second trip. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Are you going to be at that one? I'm sorry, I'm not going to be at Gallifrey 1, no, because it's it's at a weird time during the year because I'm a teacher, so I can't actually take that weekend off. February, yeah, I'm and working my social services myself, so I'm a bit luckier in terms of uh, when I can take my uh, take my leave, but um, yeah, looking forward to it. It's also very expensive, and I noticed that you talked about the impersonality of modern conventions in one of your last podcasts and having just gone to C2E2 and um, talking to David Tennant there, but talking to him in an audience across a void and not being able to interact with him personally, I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, can you remind me what I said? Sorry, Tony, I'm a bit... Uh... <laughs> you said, um, well, it was, it was either you or your co-host, you were talking about the impersonality of these conventions and how, once upon a time, yeah, you could just walk up to somebody and start a conversation with them, and now they've got, you know, guards around them, basically, and they're shipped from one room to another, to a panel, to an autograph, and you never get to interact with them directly anymore. Yeah, that's, that's a, the larger scale ones, um, which, aren't, which aren't necessarily just Doctor Who, I find. Yeah. I mean, we have the, yeah. the biggest one in the UK is probably London Film Comic Con, and that's in about a fortnight's time. And last year it was very much, um, I, I likened it to a cattle mart, you know, just, you just sort of shuffled through. It's exactly that, yeah. I did yeah. get a few words with people, I mean, it was Christopher Eccleston last year, his very first and only convention, he's there again in a fortnight, and I believe he's been announced for New York Comic Con later in the year. Oh yes he has, but I'm glad he's doing conventions over there too, because he kind of was avoiding them for the longest time, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, we're, we're sort of all speculate about the issues as to why he left the show after one year, and, uh, you know, perhaps it, perhaps he'll he'll mellow out in time, perhaps he'll give us a big finish one day, you know, that would be nice. That would be. That absolutely would be. I mean, here we are in 2019, and we've got loads of Tom Baker plays, but if you'd asked me back in 2000 if we ever were going to hear Tom Baker in an audio, I would have said no. Yeah, and apparently he's banked them up, you know, until they have enough to release them to about 2022, I heard, so... Uh... Oh, goodness. <laughs> if there's anybody that's going to be omnipotent in the Doctor Who world, it'll be Tom. Yeah, exactly. I don't think he's quite up to the uh, numbers of the other Doctors yet, because I think it's Paul McGann that holds that record now, isn't it? Quite possibly, you know, I think he certainly made up for the... Well, we have two TV appearances now, but uh, 
the one that was uh, existing for so long from the mid-90s. He's coming in November as well, and I'm hoping to get he and Katie and uh, Louise Jameson to record bumpers for our podcast. Oh, that would be excellent. Yeah, I mean, um, a podcast I used to be on before um, the, the host sort of left us... Uh, Russell T. did uh, record us one for our old podcast, and we got John Leeson to do one once, and he actually did it in the canine voice, so that was wonderful. That's right. He's coming in November, too, so hopefully he'll remember that and do it for us as well. I think he will, because it was amazing when I met him. It was uh, down near London, and um, I just asked him, and he was very pleasant. You know, He said I'd do it straight away, and he, he sort of paused for a minute, and you could see him sort of putting his hand to his head and getting in the zone, and all of a sudden, canine's voice came out, and it was wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. So speaking back to Tom, um, how do you feel Philip Hinchcliffe writes the fourth Doctor in this story and uh, Tim Piggott-Smith performs it? Well, as I said, he's a lot snippier with Sarah and just about everybody in this version. Um, And I think part of that is because of a change that Hinchcliffe makes very early on. Um, The Doctor has a line when he's talking about the size of the TARDIS and he says... I, I don't I don't understand why I like your species so much because you just don't get these things. And Sarah's rejoinder is, well, it's because you have such good taste and he says, well, that's true, that's very true and it softens that moment and Baker's delivery softens it. Tim Pickett Smith's delivery and the line itself makes the doctor sound like, well, I don't even know what you're doing here. And there's no rejoinder to it at all and the very next thing is they find the... Uh, the new control room and that sets the tone of their interactions which makes it even stranger when the doctor later says he's thinks is thinking he's got a responsibility to find sarah because he's put her in the situation which i think is a really a big theme in this book oh sorry when you said the word responsibility then it cut out for a short second afterwards tony so um oh yeah that is um he says he's thinking when he's trying to get Sarah back from the uh, Brethren that he has a responsibility to her, and Hinchcliffe actually goes into that for a few lines. And I think that's one of the themes of this particular book, the fact that he's brought the Mandragora Helix to Earth. So we've got a Doctor who is a lot more subdued than usual, and when he does try to joke, Sarah calls him out on it. You can tell that the the honeymoon between the two of them is very much over and of course she's going to leave in the next story completely frustrated well possibly because of the amount of jeopardy she gets put in in this story as well <laughs> oh my god she gets herself in trouble in record time in this one doesn't she oh yes yeah, seems to be one thing after the other oh well on page on the page at least you get to see it happening but on screen, she goes off and pulls something from a tree. I assume it's a peach because she bites right through the uh, skin, but she says it's an orange, but in the book she says it's a peach. And then the next th- time you see her, she's unconscious and being oh, dragged away. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that was quick. And how do you feel about the um, the fringe characters in this one, or the, the supporting cast? Um, how do you feel Hinchcliffe brings those across in the uh, in the text? Oh my god, they're so much better on the te- in the text than they are on screen. Because uh, <laughs> we we all know that scene where the uh, guards are trying to go down into the catacombs and we get the famous line, I ain't going down there, Giovanni. And it's in this <laughs> very cockney accent. 
and they sound more Italian on the page because, of course, you're not reading that accent into it and you're not stuck with that. Yeah, many, accent. many, many Cockneys there in Renaissance Italy, I expect. Yeah, precisely. And also, I notice he goes a lot more into the uh, the actual power plays, the political power plays that are going on. So the Count's machinations feel a lot more front and center in this version than they do on screen, where they're just background to Mandragora trying to take over the world. I mean, it's it's almost an ex- early example of us Who fans wanting wanting uh, larger universe stories, isn't it? You know, in terms of the fact we lap up things like extras and behind the scenes videos nowadays you know this mm-hmm. my my co-host of my uh, former podcast described um the target novels as being the iPlayer of the 70s you know or the um sort of streaming download services of the 70s you know the the extended universes yes in fact uh david tennant said it was the betamax <laughs> of his time period but it, you're absolutely right um but it does it both frees you from the interpretation that the actors give it on on screen, but also locks you into a very specific interpretation that the producer has, or the, the, the author does, uh, in this case, producer Philip Hinchcliffe. And so there are a lot of little things in it that are very different from the story that I think he was just kind of wishing could have been in that story. And so where would you put this one up in terms of the, you know, the periods of Target books? Well, let's see. Given that Hinchcliffe only wrote the two, it's, it's kind of unfair to compare him to Dix, except in a negative way. Um, this is certainly better than Keys of Marinus, which my panelists despised, and with good reason. Hinchcliffe basically does not try to imagine anything more to the world of Marinus, and any good novel- novelist would have done that. Um, here, at least, he's filling in the background. He's giving us the historical template across which the story was painted. And that's good. As far as getting anything new out of it, there's really not a lot that's new. And the sign of a, of a great target novelization is that it does add something new and makes you take a different uh, perspective on a particular story. I think so. I, I thoroughly agree with that, Tony. Um... As we would with um, our other host, Lee, um, would you like to give a score for this novelization out of 10? Yeah, out of 10. Okay. All right. That's going to, let's see. I have to, I have to convert. <laughs> I have to convert from a uh, metric here. Uh, let's see. Uh, what would it be on the 10 scale? Because on the 5 scale, it would definitely be more like a 3. So I would say this comes on... And you'd think I'd be able to do this because I teach all the time. I should just be able to give it an A, B, C, or D. Um, probably a 7. A 7? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd go around about a 6.5 to a 7 year. And it's not a structure that we always follow, but we tend to sort of give a a separate score for the audiobook and the TV episodes. And I think I'd probably say a 6 for the book, maybe a 7.5 for the audiobook, and a 7 again for the episodes. Yeah, I would do that too, um, because I've always felt kind of strange about Masculine Dragra, because I know that they were trying to kind of renovate things with the new TARDIS and uh, interior and the new font on the credits and all of that, and getting rid of Sarah, 
And it feels kind of like it works, but then it doesn't always work. So it's definitely one of those seven-ish episodes. But the audio, you're right. The audio kind of improves upon it, but then you've got Tim Pickett-Smith giving this Doctor weird voice. So. He's not necessarily a reader I would look forward to hearing more of from the range. You know, he's he's passed away now. I'm not sure if he did um, any more audiobook readings in the past. I'm not sure he did, because we were just talking about him the other day, because, of course, his first appearance in Doctor Who was Claws of Axos, and I don't think he does the audiobook of that one. I think that one is probably done by Richard Franklin. Yes, I think it is Richard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think this is probably the only one Tim Bigot Smith did. And that's both good and bad, I think, because this interpretation of the Doctor would take some getting used to. It's very, um... It's very plummy, isn't it? I guess that's the best way to describe it. Well, Sarah, it's a Time Lord gift I allowed you to share. You know, that he's got that kind of delivery, and it's like, oh dear. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we haven't really spoken about covers yet. Have you had a chance to look online at the, um, the uh, UK cover? Uh, in fact, let me pull that up right now, because, to be honest, I didn't grab it off the, uh, the shelf, and I should have done that, because I have it. Yeah, we have the separate cover for the uh, the Pinnacle books as well. The the Pinnacle books, I love that cover. I adore that cover. But the, I remember that the one for Target is... Oh, dear. <laughs> Tom is looking through a cardboard roll, I think, with a light on the other end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is... Oh, dear. That... Oh. I'm not, I'm not sure what's, what's happening with Tom's nose there. It's... Uh, no, it's, it seems like he's got something jammed up his right nostril. The poor That's thing. very true, yeah, like a little pin or something. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, obviously a lot of the covers from Tom's run are, you know, variable, shall we say. Uh, the one for Rebo's operation is terrible. It's the worst art I've ever seen on a Doctor Who cover. But this one, there's not really a lot of uh, invention going on in this. It's just his face surrounded by all those uh, uh, masks of Hieronymus. Yeah, so you'll just hear the pages turning here. I'm just looking to see who did the Pinnacle cover, actually, and and who did the British one. Oh, I looked that up last night, and I don't remember his name. Damn it. Oh, here it is. David Mann. David Mann. David Mann, that's the US yes. version. Yeah, yes. it's... um. It's it's got a little bit of photorealism on it on the right hand side. Is it the character on the right hand side I'm looking at? Yes, and I think that's meant to be the count, even though the count, of course, is much more portly on on screen. But it's yeah, it's a very very well defined face, and the mask on the character opposite. Yep. And the mask in the in the middle, and I do like the uh, you know the purple with the white trim on this Doctor Who logo. Yeah. Now, I'm wondering if they gave David Mann a photo reference for this one, because occasionally, just occasionally, when he does secondary characters or he does a prop or something, it looks nothing like what it's supposed to, and you get the sense that he's designed it from a description of the episode. He's not actually seen it. But here, the Hieronymus mask looks almost the same. Yeah, it uh, it almost puts me in mind of... uh the character's face of Madame Vastra. Oh, yes. Yes, it does, actually. You're right. 
Oh wow, now I can't unsee that. <laughs> <laughs> there must be we'll be in Doctor Who fans, we'll find a link somewhere. Big big finish will give us a play about the Silurians and uh, the mask. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yeah, I do like the central yeah. theme of the sword uh, going through the mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it took me a while before I realized exactly what that was meant to be, and I think that is meant to be the sacrificial knife, though. Odd to see it placed so prominently on the 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 page, and come to think of it, he must have had a photo a photo reference because that orange glow around it is exactly how the uh, helix energy is depicted on screen. Absolutely, yeah. It's a very rich color scheme, I find. You know, this I've got a I've got a pretty worn copy of the novel here, but um, it certainly still stands out after all these years. Yeah, it absolutely does. Oh, something that your listeners may not know about, and I just found this out myself, is that there's apparently an outfit from the late 70s that did a limited run of hardback novelizations uh, for Doctor Who, and they used the Pinnacle uh, logo, but they it wasn't Pinnacle. So this has led people to think, oh, well, there's... Obviously, Pinnacle did hardcover. It's like, no, they didn't. But this hardcover, this, I'm sorry, this logo was used for those hardcovers. So <laughs> people think it's some sort of uh, hoax or something. It's like, no, no, they actually did about two or three. But I can't remember the name of the company. And they're extremely rare. So I had never heard of this before. Yes, Tony. Um, so we've discussed it um in, in a fair bit of detail, the novel, but I hope we've given you enough to discuss. Uh, when your podcaster looks at this story, it'll be quite a few years away, though, I expect. Yeah, I think we're looking at, what, four, five? Yeah, at least four years. Wow, we might have uh, an upscaled 4K box set by then. <laughs> oh, terrific. <laughs> yeah, I've just got, um, how's the, um, we like to say on the podcast, uh, give the listeners a bit of Doctor Who news if we can. Um, has anything caught your eye, um, Tony, recently? Oh, let me think, let me think, let me think, because I just got a copy of Doctor Who magazine, but then I get them long after y'all do. So, let me see if there's anything that was really impressive to me, and I don't think there was anything. I know that McGann is doing a third set of Ravenous audios, which... I've not listened to them myself, but I've heard very good things about them. Okay. I had not heard the first two, so I wasn't quite sure about it. And something on another podcast that I've guested on, uh, Talking Who to You, they discuss nothing but the audio dramas. Um, We're going to be discussing the third volume of the Third Doctor Adventures, and apparently for volume five, they've recast the Brigadier and Liz Shaw, so we'll be hearing those voices as well. Okay, do we know, is it John Coleshaw playing the Brigadier? It is. It is. So at least we know that one will sound correct. And uh, Liz Shaw is being played by her own daughter, uh, Daisy Ashford. Daisy Ashford, yes. Yeah, I recall yeah. seeing uh, Liz at Regenerations, the small convention. My One of my friends used to run here in Wales. Um, and then we saw Jeffrey Beavers came along uh, shortly after she'd passed away. You know, that was a pretty tough time for him. Oh, yeah, I imagine so. He has stayed extremely active in the uh, in the universe of Doctor Who, which is lovely, I think. Yeah, I remember he guested a few years ago on uh, the soap in the UK we have called EastEnders, and he actually oh, yeah. he actually played a judge, 
and uh, sort of Twitter was awash with Doctor Who fans that night because he still had that very sort of sinister voice when he was playing a judge, and everybody <laughs> thought, you know, is this judge really the master in disguise? <laughs> <laughs> I was so shocked to see him in a Pertwee episode uh, not long ago because he, uh... Oh, which one was he in? It was the one we just recently discussed the novelization of. It was, no, it wasn't Mind of Evil, was it? No, um... Was it? I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember which one. I think it was at the same time that Caroline was on, so it would have been, um, the season before. Yeah, so maybe it's, uh... Maybe it's Ambassadors of Death? Oh, sorry, he was, yeah, you are, right? The Ambassadors of Death. It was Ambassadors of Death, yeah. As Johnson. It's really strange seeing him that young. <laughs> yes. And, of course, I, I got the um, the Blu-ray box set came out in the UK this week, uh, season 10. I'm so envious. We're not getting that for a while. I know. We're not getting I, that for a while. I put on Carnival of Monsters, and, of course, we see Ian Martyr, don't we? Just before he's Harry oh. Sullivan. Oh, God, yes. But so I've beautiful. not got through all of it yet, though. It's got... Uh, a good couple of new documentaries. I've heard great things about the new John Pertwee documentary on there, and it was, of course, um, a hundred years since his birth last weekend. And we had a few radio shows in the, in uh, the UK. There's one called the John Pertwee Files, hosted by his son Sean. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I heard about um, uh, Sean giving a tribute to him. Yeah, there's a beautiful video with uh, Dr. Matthew Sweet as well online. It's a five-minute uh, video released by the official Doctor Who channel. And he uh, talks very fondly of his father in that. I'm very much looking forward to that box set. <laughs> yeah, much missed. Um, are you one for spoilers, Tony, about the new series? Are you one for wanting to hear those, or do you like to avoid things? I would actually like to hear it, because I, in the course of a day, I don't actually get any info about the new series, so I would love to hear some. Yeah, well, the latest rumour is that we may be seeing the return of the Cybermen in a story with uh, Mary Shelley, the... Uh, Author, of course, of Frankenstein. Oh my! Okay, didn't I think? No, this has been discussed on the forums as well. Whether they'll uh, they'll backtrack and uh, we'll have a bit of a continuity argument with Mister McGann's Doctor, but we shall wait and see. I mean, how? Well, that would be interesting. I mean, how do you feel? Um, series eleven went down with uh, with fans in the states. You know, fans overall. Okay. Um, well, here's the thing. It tends. I, I've noticed that it's definitely American fans who tend to have more of a problem with the Doctor being a woman than British fans. Though I imagine that, that there's a percentage there as well. There's quite a few, yeah. So unfortunately, yeah. So you're going to have fans ragging on it for just that reason. But a lot of us who overall were very supportive of Jodie Whittaker, myself included, felt that the stories themselves let her down. Yes, I- that they weren't as strong as they should be. I mean, there's this word that I hear used a lot with Chris Chibnall's work, and it's it's just bland. I mean, I, th- yeah. I think that's... It's quite unfair, but when I'm watching the episodes, I do feel they're missing something, I, but I can't put my finger on it, what it is exactly. I mean, there's a couple of superb episodes in Series 11, you know, I'm thinking Demons of the Punjab, I'm thinking Rosa. But, um... And Resolution. There's too many and that resolution. something is missing from. Resolution 2, yes. Yeah. Um, well, my roommate, who's not as big a Doctor Who fan as I am, um, when we wa- were watching it, he said that he felt something was missing too, and he finally locked it down. He said, we're not learning anything new about the do- this Doctor, that whenever we have a re- regeneration, it's still the Doctor, but it's 
a doctor with a difference. So we learn something about their motivations. We learn something about their inner character. And Jody is on 24 on 7 in those episodes, but we still don't learn anything new except for that one uh, brief mention about the. Oh, God, I can't even remember it. It was so brief. They, it, it sounded like they were setting up a story arc and they weren't. Yeah, you know, I think we, we're used to story arcs, arcs certainly since yeah. the new series began. That's the other thing, that there's no overarching story. And I'm perfectly fine with standalone episodes. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Buffy fan as well, so the standalones are just as good as the ones that tie together with the big bad of the season, but they still need to give us some character development, and we're seeing a lot of that with Graham, who's one of my favorite companions now of all time. I think, yeah, but, you know, Yaz and Ryan, there needs to be quite a bit more, I think. Yeah. Yeah, especially with the as. I mean, with Ryan, it's more a case of, I have a disability, let me talk about it when it's time for it to come up in the episode. But Yaz is this is a, pol- is a tr- policewoman trainee, and we haven't seen any of those skills being used in any of the episodes yet. No, no, that's very true, and um, I think Tosin Cole as, um, as Ryan, I've seen him in a lot of sort of short films, and he, he does have a very good range, it's just... Perhaps the scripts and directions haven't allowed him to uh, to show off more of his acting ability. No, they're they're not challenging to him, except for Rosa, for obvious reasons. Did do you think they went for too big a TARDIS team to start this era? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Sorry, do do you think perhaps they did go for too large a TARDIS team to start this new era? I I do, and I think, and I know the reason why, and I think it's unfortunate. Uh, it's the same reason they gave Peter Davison a big one. It's because they weren't quite sure of the strength of the character. And uh, that that speaks to me of a producer who's not certain about their lead, which is unfortunate because Jodie Whittaker could probably carry the show even if she didn't have a companion. I would agree with that, yes. Yeah, her force of personality is such that I would just, I would just watch her do a, a one-woman show. Uh, for this, but yeah, I think she would work best with just one companion. Uh, hopefully, uh, Jasmine. Uh, 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 it is, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I would, yeah, I would much prefer. I think it's time for uh, Graham and his grandson to probably exit the TARDIS stage right and let the girls go off and uh, fight evil across the galaxy. Yeah, and hopefully bring a few more returning villains in. I mean, do you feel. He went too far the other way in season 11? Yeah, he did. And again, I understand his reasons. I really do. Uh, some, of the, some of those villains have been mined out entirely, so that's why Resolution was such a joy to watch, because it was a finally a new take on the Daleks, and I thought, yes, this is what the books have been doing for a while. We need this in the series. Hopefully he'll do something like that with the Cybermen, because they're pretty tapped out by the new series, too. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing a redesign again, to be honest. I've, I've never been a huge fan of the new series ones. No, no. And I thought I was going to enjoy the Neil Gaiman episode, but he kind of made them a little bit more like the Borg, and they're just not the Borg at all. Yeah, I think the, my favorite part of that episode is the, uh, the the chess game when he's channeling... Uh, he channels Christopher Eccleston, doesn't he? And uh, yes. David Tennant briefly. 
I do love that. I do love it whenever you have uh, Matt Smith being challenged to expand his range. But then again, that's another actor who was ill-served by a lot of the scripts that he got. Because so. I'm all often in two minds of who's my favorite of the new series, and I think it is Matt, to be honest. Really? Okay. I'd, I'd go with uh, David Tennant myself, but Matt is definitely a... Uh, well, I, no, I can't say that. I was going to say he's a close second, but that's Peter Capaldi. I, I, I have this irrational uh, thing about David Tennant, thinking he's probably far too good-looking a man to play the Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously the Doctor thinks so, too. It's the only time he's been that vain about his looks. No, but it's just it's just when you were growing up, you know, you had these things like Pertwee had a big nose, Tom had a big grin, and David's just probably... Too good for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but it's nothing wrong. His acting is superb. I go back and watch the episodes and the writing, and it's superb. And you know, it's just—I don't know what it is. I just, some reason, I was really rooting for Matt when he started, and he did—he did take the ball f- and run with it for me. So, right. Well, he had a lot working against him from the BBC higher ups because they essentially, at the start, wanted to make him into another David Tennant sex symbol, and. Uh, I'm so glad they went with the more professorial garb that he ended up with because he looks terrible in those early photos. <laughs> That's very, very, very true. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we like to ask as well, Tony, media-wise, if uh, any of our hosts or guests have got any recommendations. Perhaps you've been reading something or watching something else or listening to music. Or Absolutely. Um I only have one class for the summer, so I've had a lot of time to catch up on binge-watching television. So I have at least three good suggestions. One of them is in sci-fi, and that's going to be a show called The Expanse. Right, yeah, I've been, it keeps coming up on my streaming service, and I keep meaning to sit down, but with modern television, Absolutely I think... Should. Yeah, we've discussed it in the past. You know, there's just so much choice nowadays. Yeah, but this one... I've, I've watched the first three seasons. The fourth season's going to be produced by, by Amazon, who's now running it. And it is absolutely amazing for those that are into grand space opera and machinations and good special effects and good acting. It's just fantastic. Um, and for those people that want something that's not genre-specific, Hulu's... La- uh, Hulu's... Uh, Hulu's recent miniseries of Catch-22 by Joseph Heller is just astonishing. Yeah, uh, Channel 4 broadcast here in the, in the UK, we've got that. And I think we're on to about episode 4 now, but I'm recording it to binge-watch when they've all been broadcast. Oh, that's right. I, I forgot it is a co-production, isn't it, with the Channel 4? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. You're going to love it, even though I did get to that last scene and I thought... Hey, I remember the book having much more of a tie-it-all-up-nicely thing. <laughs> the series just will not do that for you, but that's fine. Adaptations can do that, can't they? Um, any trips to the movies lately, or uh, concerts, or books you've books you've read? No. <laughs> In fact, I haven't had time. I, I, I haven't really had time to go to the movies, and to be honest, with the podcast... I'm lucky if I get to read anything that's not Doctor Who related. That's though. true, yeah. I find that a bit difficult. It's why I had to... Um, I've watched sort of the first two or three stories on the Season 10 Blu-ray box set, but I knew I had to uh, focus back on Mask of Mandragora, so I've given it a break until uh, the end of next week where I'll be watching uh, the remaining stories again. 
I do know that I've been trying to uh, read off and on uh, the, the book Room by Anna, Emma Donahue, which is great, but it's also just absolutely terrifying. You know, don't go in expecting to have a happy story because it's absolutely not a happy story. Marvellous, marvellous. Uh, yeah, so thank you, Tony, for coming on today. It's been wonderful to have you as a guest. Thank you for having me. And would you like to uh, let our listeners know where they could find you on social media and where they could find your podcast? Yes, let me see if I can do the spiel off the top of my head rather than looking it up again. Uh, we're on Facebook.com as Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces, like a crazy person. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud.com at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. That's probably the easiest way to get them, but you can also get them through the podcast provider of your choice, including um, iTunes and Spotify. And you can also watch video of our first 12 episodes on youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Emperor Dalek. And we come out with new episodes roughly twice a month. So our next episode is going to be dropping tomorrow, and that's going to be uh, Claws of Access with uh, special guest Trey Corte. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for that, Tony. Thank you. So, folks, thanks for Tony for that interview, and Lee is back with us now. How how are you, mate? Well, apart from being full of cold and feeling a bit sick, yeah, I'm good. Well, there we are, folks. Yeah, there's there's nothing more to it than that. I <laughs> I sort of rushed my food to get over here on time. Yeah, missed out on Tony, but it was a very interesting chat. Thanks to him for that. Well, I'm sorry, I missed him. Yeah, I got the times mixed up a little bit, folks. You know, I think. Tony thought it was 6pm over here and I, I thought I'd said 7 but uh, you know oh well but maybe you'll come back on again for another uh, oh hopefully yes Mandragora Mandragora how do you pronounce it Mandragora Manindragora yeah, yeah Manindragora Eddie is odd the mask of Eddie is what were your initial thoughts on it Lee? of the the um, audiobook itself because when you mentioned about doing this I had never heard of this story. I remember I even messaged you back saying, does this have a different name on TV? And you go, no, that's what the name of the... Episode. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a Doctor Who story, does it? It doesn't sound like a Doctor Who story. And with most, I'd say 90% of the Doctor Who stories, even if you haven't seen them, you've actually heard of them. This one, i had never heard of whatsoever. You suggested I got the audiobook, I bought the DVDs, because I refuse to buy digital now, because it's... <laughs> sorry, sorry, listeners, but it is. Buying things digitally is horrible now. I was surprised how, how engaging this book was. Tim Pickett-Smith obviously played Marco in the story, read it brilliantly, sadly no longer with us. Yeah, it was so engaging, and so after listening to the audiobook, then watching it, I think this could be at the top of one of my favourite classic Doctor Who stories. Wow. Me and Tony were sort of scoring it between six and seven, mate. We found Really? It, yeah, we found overall it sort of felt a bit bland and... Oh, it, it reminded me of, especially after I watched it, do you remember in the 70s, um, and they got repeated in the 80s, but they, they came out in the 70s, the BBC did a lot of serializations of like Charles Dickens did some Shakespeare obviously I Claudius and I thought this didn't play anything like a classic Doctor Who story this was more like a 
a BBC drama that happened to have the Doctor in it. I mean, it was filmed in Port Myrion, which was famous for The Prisoner. And because a lot of it is filmed outside, it just works so well. I, I love the story. I'm surprised you, the, you both scored it so low. Not sure what it was, really. Just sort of missing something. It was a pretty straight-up adaptation. Hinchcliffe, he... Yeah, he didn't elaborate greatly on the story, which I think the better target novels do, but... For me, this is this is one thing that I will listen to again. Because I can't watch the the episodes. I've watched the episodes like two or three times. Because I enjoyed it so much. And I, I, you have no idea how shocked I am that you thought it was... It, was, it kind of dragged. This is, this is a very visual story. You, know, you have the beautiful settings and everything, and everything like that. I, I just thought that Tim Pickett Smith. I don't know why every time I say that I just keep thinking Tim Nice but Dim, and it's nothing <laughs> like that. Um, it, it was just, it was just such an enjoyable story. I mean, you know, when it was, it's supposed to be set the 16th century. Renaissance Saturday. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. I can't say any more. I. <laughs> If you haven't read it, read it. If you haven't seen the episodes in a long time, go back and revisit them. You'll have such a great time. Great story all the way round. Sarah Jane Smith kind of feels out of place in the story a bit. Is that why they try keep trying to get rid of her so much jeopardy? I read a lot of comics and I love I've always loved Batman since I was a kid. And you have stories that just have Batman in it, even though he has got like Robin and all of these other characters. Some, sometimes they're just stories just about Batman. But the Doctor, I feel, it should be some stories which it's just the Doctor. I know now they do that, especially if it's in between um, assistants. You'll have, especially at Christmas, you'll have just the story of the Doctor. And I love those stories. I know you're not a big fan of the Christmas episodes. No. Um, and I wish they would do that. And in this, it felt as though Sarah Jane could be having a bit of a sleep on the TARDIS. Yeah, I, I, I would go along with that. You know, this setup wise, I suppose you've given like a passioned view of it, you know, really. Yeah. In contrast to what, you know, I was talking about with Tony really. It's Yeah, you know, I'm starting to see more things in it now you've you you brought up those issues. Go back and watch something from the BBC from the seventies like I Claudius and then watch it. I Claudius is probably a bad choice because, you know, it's it's set That's in a row. classic, yeah. Um but it looks very. It looks like a classic BBC drama, not what many people thought at the time was some crappy sci-fi show. Which you know it wasn't. It was a great show on Saturday afternoons. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Mask of Man Dragora. Quite a few different covers, Lee. The initial one, uh, me and Tony took quite a lot, a lot of piss out of it. Really. Um, was it the original cover? The with Tom Baker looking like he's staring down a cardboard tube. Yeah, that was the one. That. You obviously every time we do these these shows, I do like research. Yeah. But this one I really researched, and it stayed in print for such a long time. Yeah. It got reprinted every year. Was a lot of them just didn't get reprinted, and it had the same covers. That's the one. That's the one that was cover of the audiobook, the original Target one from 1978. Very true. Very true. It does look like it's been knocked together quite quickly. Yeah, and what is happening with Tom's right nostril? Has he got a pin in there or something? He's, he's not a happy boy in that one. No. But I'll be honest, it is better than the Virgin cover. You know, it's, it's got a very strong red. 
It's a much better drawing of Tom, though, on that Virgin cover. And then we have the, which I think might be Russian or possibly Italian. Probably turn out to be French now yeah. or something. <laughs> That's an awful cover. Igor Grichka Bogodov presents Doctor Who, The Mask of... And The Mask of Man- Mandragora. They look like a boy band. Yeah, they look like a boy band that have done a really bad cover for a Spectrum game. <laughs> Very true. Tom looks like he's wearing a hoodie rather than a... Uh, yeah, or a bathrobe. His normal outfit, yeah. And there's a lot of purple there. Far too much. Yeah, and, and two people looking very happy. <laughs> and then we have the uh, American cover. The Pinnacle Books cover. What do you make of that one? Uh, Tony like- found it pretty pretty striking. I've pretty much agreed as a pretty memorable one, but uh, no Doctor, of course. No Doctor. Italian... Re- renaissance with their funny hats if you took the doctor off it you would it would just come across as a sci-fi novel which I know it is but there's nothing to indicate this Doctor Who but then I do like it I like the guy in the, on the left in the hood and the mask yeah he reminded me uh, Madame Vastra the uh, Salorin in yeah. the new series so, right, if we're going to round this up, because, you know, I've, I've missed part of this podcast. That's okay. I was just going to say that, um, how do you feel, you know, the writing, how do you feel Philip Hinchcliffe wrote Tom, you know, given that he wrote so much as a producer with him. He works so well as a producing team, it's seen as a golden era. I know I give him passion. It is it is a paint-by-numbers um, story. Philip Hinchcliffe has done a good job of adapting it. Yeah. As you said, he's worked with Tom for a very long time. I think he did a very good job. In the audiobook, Tim Pickett-Smith did... I love saying that name, Tim Pickett-Smith. <laughs> um, did a good job of having the feel of the Doctor. Not the feel of the Doctor, obviously. <laughs> That'd be a completely different TV show. <laughs> Sarah Jane just looking on, going, oh my God. <laughs> Give me K9. <laughs> Not in that way. Such a 90s reference. Yeah. <laughs> For the audiobook, it was enjoyable. I'm going to give it a solid eight. Um, for the actual TV show itself, I'm giving it a ten. It seems to me you really enjoyed it because it was out of the norm for Doctor Who at that time. You really like yeah. that, yeah. I like. I can some, see that point of view. Yeah. I like it when it's when it's something different. There's only so many times you can be shown the same thing over and over again before you go. No, this is kind of boring and formulate. Take the Marvel films for example. Yeah. When they first came out. I'd be really excited and say, like, yeah, I've got to go and see this as soon as it comes out. Now I've gone, yeah, I'll turn up eventually. And we're kind of moving towards a more sort of gothic era at this time of Doctor Who, and yeah. it works that way. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was excited when it was announced as Jodie being the Doctor. I was going, right, after 50-odd years, it's something different now. Yeah. And she did a brilliant job. I was going to say I gave it around about a 6, and then I think 7.5 for the episode... Maybe a 7.5 for the audio, so... One you'd recommend? Of course. <laughs> amazing. Absolutely amazing. Great stuff. Uh, Doctor Who News this week, Lee. I got the uh, Season 10 box set, John Pertwee. Watched sort of half of it so far. The Great Man's uh, Centenary last weekend, and there's a very good radio documentary, the John... Sorry. The John Pertwee Files, by his son, by John's son, Sean Pertwee. 
Would you recommend going out and buying it? How does how does it transfer? Because obviously it's video to film. I don't think the transfer is that impressive. What's impressive is the new documentaries, and uh, they've got a few new commentaries as well. Basically, it's looking at who's left from the Pertwee era now, and there's three of them. There's Katie Manning, there's Richard Franklin, there's uh, John Levine. And they're all getting on, so yeah, it's just nice to have something new. That's always my biggest worry about when they transfer things to Blu-ray, and even now with 4K, is you're going to see the cracks. So at least with, I think by the time you got to DVD, it got to just the right level of going, this is a really good quality picture, but you still can't see everything. Yeah, they got a new uh, format on these Blu-ray releases called Behind the Sofa, and you get the remaining members of the unit team watching it. You get um, newer series involved, people like Phil Collins and the old producer, and Joy Wilkinson, who wrote the Witchfinders episode in the Jodie series. Mm. She's watching it with... uh, So you have that juxtaposition of the older people watching it and the uh, younger people re-watching it, and uh, it's a really good bit of material on the box set I would quite like to see sit in the same vein I would like to see the new doctors sitting down watching an old episode yes because didn't David Tennant and Phil Collinson the producer who's on this did the five doctors new format on this special easter egg of a commentary of them watching it and you know after a half an hour they're sort of taking the mick out of it in the same way you know we do yeah. various stories but it's a, it's an enjoyable listen it's done with a certain amount of realisation that you you know you loved the show as a kid I mean I, th- I think if you can't take you know, take the piss out of something that you really love what have you been watching reading week, listening to yeah um, this week I have been re-watching the classic well I say classic because it's old it's not great, but I still love it. The Frank Skinner TV show, the one that his first ex- exposure on TV, Blue Heaven. It was he did have a show on before, which I can't remember. Packet of Three, it was called. <laughs> yes, it was genuinely called Packet of Three. Um, Blue Heaven. The amount of people in it that went on to have careers, such as the guy that played Varys in Game of Thrones. He's you know, he's the other guy in the band. Bill Bailey, for our American listeners. Bill Bailey's a British comedian, very good, very funny. Didn't he audition to become the Hobbit? I think Being he does He does a rings. very good uh, routine about that and his stand-up. Yes, he does. And I finished reading the black DC Black series Batman Damned, um, which was all right. After the, after the controversy of the first issue where you see Batman's wanger <laughs> and I'm not joking that's not made up you, there is a silhouette where you can genuinely see Batman's willy is that, I thought that was one of his new uh, gadgets then <laughs> fire bat willy <laughs> um, but that's pretty much it what about yourself yeah um, well we both went to see Spider-Man Far From Home oh yeah I forgot about that what do we make of the latest uh, effort in the Marvel Universe um, post Endgame of course the first one post Endgame Obviously, I've been a Spider-Man fan for as long as I can remember, so I went in the, into this knowing Mysterio was a bad guy. I thought it was a really well done, in which in which case you really are uh, you. He's such a likable character. Jake Gyllenhaal, he portrays him as a very likable character, and you find out he's just been plethos. It was, as I said earlier, it's formulaic now, but it was enjoyable for the two hours that we were there. 
I think so, yeah. Enjoyable enough. I... Marvel films, I'll take them or leave them. They're just disposable to me. I'll just watch them once. Is it because you, you were in your 30s when they started? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Iron Man is superb. That's probably one I have gone back and watched again, but I've got no desire to rewatch any of the, any of the others. I mean, we went to see that when it came out. 2008? Yeah, 2008, and I think I've maybe watched it once since. Everyone... It's turned up on Channel 4, and I've ended up watching it. Didn't you watch Smokey? Speaking of turning up on TV, didn't you watch Smokey and the Bandit? Three. I did. It was on the other night because I'd done the first two fairly recently, but I put off part three because I knew I. It, it wasn't as good, but it was. I think I texted you and said, This is so bad, it's actually good. And we, of course, get Bert turning up right at the end. That's the bit that I will always remember is him turning up at the end, and I always used to think, Why? What was the point of that? You could have just had a little cameo at the beginning and get it out of the way. But you, as an adult, I see it as sentimental as it is intended to be. This was a nice... It was a nice vehicle, this film, to give to Jackie Gleason because that you've got to take the third film as being all about him. You know, There's a good dynamic between the two of them and the other cast, like Jerry Reed and Sally Field in the first two films. But this is all about Jackie Gleason. You know, Jerry Reed's pretty forgettable as a bandit, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's just... Smokey then. Yeah. I I liked what I liked. Jerry Reed is basically cosplaying the bandit. Yeah. The dynamic of the work between Jerry Reed, um, Sally Sally Field, Burt Reynolds, Jackie Gleason and the guy playing his son, it all worked really well for the first two films. And then when you take one of those parts out, it doesn't work as well for me. I'm sure if I went back and watched it, there'd be the nostalgia of going, there's Jackie Gleason again playing Buford T... Justice. Justice, that's it. I couldn't remember his name then. Um, I'm sure there'd been some nostalgia for that. But I've loved the first two films. I've seen them so many times. I've never I've never got, had the desire to go back and watch the third. But some of the jokes, like, you know, he's advocating uh, sort of domestic violence against his wife. To the son, you know. But the excuse is always, oh, that was the 80s, 70s, that's what they said. Well, yeah, I mean, in fair, fairness, it's it's true. I mean, that, that was a product of its time. One thing that really annoys me these days is when people retroactively complain about things that... The main one is in Friends. We've got these jokes that are slightly homophobic, or they're going, yeah, okay, they are. But that was at that time. Yeah. I mean, how far can we go back going, I can't believe it, they were pillaging and raping in the 12th century, that's disgusting. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what happened at the time. And it's, it's a bit different to the actual... <laughs> well, what they used to do in terms of people speaking about other things. <laughs> I mean, if you want... When did Friends start in the nineties? You go back to '94. Yeah, you know you had Jim Davidson in the eighties still doing his chalky white routine. Yeah, you do that now, you, you um, you'd be crucified. But I mean, it was a product of its time. It's like, that was acceptable then. It's not acceptable now. It's like, well, that's fine. Just don't do it now then. But yeah. don't then complain of going. Well, they did it then. You shouldn't have done it then. No, you shouldn't have done it then. But that's what the time was. TV wise, I binged watched. Stranger Things season three, really slow first two episodes. I was almost on the verge of giving up then because I'd been disappointed with the slow pace of season two. But gotta say, from season three up to season eight, it really ramped up and thoroughly oh, enjoyed three, it. Season eight, you watched a lot of seasons, did you? <laughs> episode three, episode eight, of course. Yeah, it really ramped up, and I did thoroughly enjoy it by the end. Um, a lot of good memes coming out of it. Memorable performance from Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman's daughter. 
But once I found out whose daughter she was, I could see nothing but her mum's performance in her own like acting display. So, um, Who was her mum? Uma Thurman. Oh, right, fair enough. It's the real-life fact. It's oh, the right. real-life daughter of Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke. Ah, right. And, but, you know, thoroughly memorable. Uh, so when you said Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke, I thought they were in it. Just like, no, viewers, I'm one of the few people who found Stranger Things really boring and <laughs> gave up after about four episodes. Fair enough. It does lean heavily on the 80s vibe again. I'm almost getting a bit sick, though, of the stylized version of the 80s, just from the fact that we were there, we did grow up there, we did know yeah. how grainy everything was on TV and how the fashions looked, even if, like, Swansea's fashions were, like, ten years behind the rest of the year, the US and the rest of the UK. Yeah, the perms and stuff. Yeah, we've only just had Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and electric TV. <laughs> TV-wise, I've gone back as well and watched... Magnum, the original Tom Selleck series, season one, that's superb still. A lot of good guest stars. They had uh, Miguel Ferrer from Twin Peaks, who we lost in the last few years. He was in the first series. And Lovejoy himself, uh, Ian... Lovejoy! Ian McShane. Deadwood, you know him from in the States. He actually plays a very pervy photographer. I mean, I think people know Lovejoy in the States now from plenty of things. That killer Santa in American Horror Story. Oh, yeah. That episode of Game of Thrones, Hellboy. I really hope America got Lovejoy. Because no one in this country got it. It's getting rebooted now, have you heard? You can't reboot Lovejoy. Uh, They'll find a way. He'll be slick and uh, filmed in 8K. Everyone knows that if you're an antique dealer, um, you've got this black perm. (laughs) And you solve crimes, because that's what antique dealers do. And you have a friend called Tinker. Yeah. So next time, dude, are we going to move to the doctors again? And uh, are we going to do the one that we were going to do this week, this month? I just realised, folks. We well, we were suggesting we were going to do the new release of Resurrection of the Daleks, but it's not out as an audio book until September. So I it was this month. The novelisation is out now, round about now. We could read the book. We could read the book. Yeah. I know. Go crazy and actually read the book instead. Oh, that's boring. That's what yeah. kids do. <laughs> Kids don't read these days. Sorry, adults, I meant. Yeah. <laughs> the kids even know what books are. So, so, so next time, uh, Peter Davison books, should we have a look what's out there, what's available? No, we're doing Peter <laughs> Davison. Like it or not, bet. So bye for now, folks. Bye-bye. Doctor Who Target Files was hosted by Lee Farncombe and Michael Winks. 13th Doctor theme cover by Borna Matosic. Please do check out YouTube channel B-O-R-N-A-M-A-T-O-S-I-C. You can contact Doctor Who Target Files on Twitter at DW Target Files handle or Instagram at Doctor Who The Target or leave a message on our Facebook page Doctor Who The Target Files. Please do rate and review us on iTunes and thank you so much for listening.